0: If you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn on over to Isaiah chapter 46. That's where we're going to be today. Isaiah chapter 46. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles provided for you. They're, uh, they're on the middle of, the, of, of each aisle. So you can flag somebody down who's sitting in the middle and they'd be happy to pass one over to you. Isaiah 46 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, we're in a series through Isaiah that's just sort of taking us in for little isolated looks at some of the biggest and best themes in this long but glorious prophet. and what we are, where we are now in this in this series is is focusing in on what Isaiah has to say about the human problem, what Isaiah has to say about Israel directly, about what it was that had led them to to the judgment that so much of this book talks about, and what we're trying to do is try, is is to see ourselves in Israel, you know, without without trying to erase what's unique about them and their time and their place. We still want to be able to see how we're guilty of the same things that got them sent off to Babylon. So this section is about trying to understand what's wrong with the human condition. What was wrong then and what's wrong now. What we've we've used to, to sort of summarize the picture that Isaiah gives of what's wrong is that it's a problem of trust. That Israel's issues all trace back to the fact that they were trusting the wrong things. What we've been trying to do is pick out examples of things they were trusting in that weren't God, that were insulting to God, and that ultimately led to their judgment. And we've talked about a couple in particular, but but where we where we were last week and where we're going to be today is on one of the most consistent things that Isaiah talks about when he's talking about Israel's sin and when he's talking about why they had to be judged. One of the most consistent things he talks about in, in some of his most vivid and beautiful passages is Israel's tendency to worship idols, to trust in the gods of their neighbors, gods they could build, gods they could look at and touch, instead of trusting in the promises of the God of Israel, the Holy One. We've been trying to look at idolatry. What we said last week, what our, what our text from last week pointed us to, is the fact that idol, idols really can be just about anything. The two words that our text last week gave us to try to identify idols, idols are anything that's not God that you delight in or to which you look for deliverance. Idols are what your heart clings to and what they rely upon, what they love, what they trust. That could be anything. Oftentimes it's something that's really good. It's a gift that God has given, something that you should love, something that you should, in a way, trust on as An extension of something God has provided to you. But we tend to put these things, whatever they might be, in a place that is reserved for God only. And when that happens, we've got ourselves an idol. Idols are the things that you live for. They're what give you meaning and purpose. They're what give you hope in the face of things you wish weren't true. They're what causes you to despair at the thought of losing those things. The last week's text focused on the danger of idolatry, the problem that idols are just useless. That was the terms that came out last week. They just don't do any good because ultimately you're trusting in something that depends on you. You're trusting in something that has no more power that, no power that you don't give to it because you're making it, and so it's useless. That was the point last week. This week's text really doesn't introduce a whole lot more of, of sort of information about God and about idolatry. What this week's text does, and the reason we're we're spending another week on idolatry, is that it gives us a concrete, vivid image for seeing what idolatry looks like in practice, for seeing the effects of it. And it goes from just saying that idols are useless, so they're kind of a waste of your time, to helping us see what they actually cost us. It's worse than than that they don't have anything to offer you. Idols actually cost you. They oppress you. They weigh you down. Because ultimately, they are a weight that you end up having to carry. That's the image this text gives us. It's the image of, of, of carrying. And it's a contrast between the gods we have to carry on our own backs and the God who promises to carry us. The text goes back and forth between these two, using this language of, of carrying. The first couple of verses talk about carrying idols that they need to be born around. Then the next few verses talk about God as the God who makes us and carries us. And then it goes back to talking about a God that you fashion according to your own plan and your own resources, but then have to hoist onto your shoulders and carry it around wherever you want it to go. Versus God who, who made you, who carries you, who knows all things and is surprised by nothing and therefore is fully equipped to handle whatever you need. That's the imagery we're going to be looking at. The gods that we're forced to carry... Versus the God who carries us. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, if you've found the passage, Isaiah 46, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read together? This is the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal. And compare me that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse. Weigh out silver in the scales. Hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down in worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It can't move from its place. If one cries to it, it doesn't answer or save him from his trouble. the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is God's word. You may be seated. Hopefully the imagery was pretty clear as we read through it. What I want to do, rather than following the back and forth of the text, is talk about each of these images in turn. The gods that we're forced to carry, and why that image works so well for describing this, this thing that idols, um, this, this thing that they do to us. And the God who promises to carry us. Carrying gods around, that's the central theme of that first section. It appears right in the opening verses. Here, Isaiah is looking ahead. You, you probably haven't seen these, these names, Bel or Nebo before. It's probably new to you. Here, what Isaiah is doing is he's looking ahead into the future, to a time when Babylon, who is great and powerful now, is actually themselves going to be conquered. He's looking ahead to the time when the Persian Empire is going to come in and, and take over Babylon and ship Babylon's people out and And he's highlighting the fact that these two gods, who were the patron gods of Babylon and another one of the main cities in their empire, were just going to be carried along for the ride. They couldn't even protect their people. In fact, they can't even walk with their people out of Babylon and into exile. They have to be carried. They're useless. They go captive just like everybody else. That's the point of the first couple verses. Israel had idolized the gods of their powerful neighbors. They had looked at places like Babylon. They wanted that power. And they assumed, well, Bel and Nebo, these official gods of the empire, they must be why Babylon is powerful. So let's worship them. If we get them on their side, then we will share in Babylon's power. That was the idea. They wanted the power and security they saw in their neighbors and thought they'd get it if they worshiped their gods. But they were wrong. When the image returns again in verse 6, skipping ahead to where, to where it's picked back up again, this image of idolatry, we get, a, we get a more full picture, a more universal picture of what idolatry always means. It takes us back into the creation process. Verse 6 takes us to the time where you can almost see these guys looking, in their, looking around their house. What do we have that has any value at all? We've got some gold. We've got a little bit of silver. Let's mass it all together. We'll take what our resources are and then we'll hire us a goldsmith who can make what we tell them to make. Don't miss that part. These gods are created by and out of whatever resources happen to be lying around. They couldn't, they couldn't be anything more than what the people who wanted the idols made could give them. Then once it's made, according to their specifications, what do they have to do? Verse 7 is, is satirical. They have to hoist it. This god that now is everything they had to give, they have to carry it around. They, they hoist it up onto their shoulders and it goes only as far as they're willing to walk with it. And the best they can hope for when they set it down is that it won't topple. That's the best case scenario is that it won't fall over. But it's certainly not going anywhere. And it's certainly not going to hear, verse 7 says, if they cry to it. It has no ears. It has nothing that they don't give it. Now, I think we've always got to be careful not to, not, to make, not to jump too quickly to making texts like this one a metaphor for us, for where we are, because there's a literal part here, too. I mean, they literally did have to use their gold and their silver to make their gods, and they literally did have to carry them wherever they wanted to take them. But I really think there is a deeper point here. I don't think we're reading too much in to see this as an image that the prophet, like a good poet, is trying to give us to help us taste what it is to trust in something that isn't God. He wants us to, ha- to, to be able to almost sense it like, you, like, you, like the difference between, uh, between knowing that something is sweet because someone told you and tasting that it's sweet because you put it into your mouth. He wants us to taste what it is to have a God that you've got to carry. I think he means for us to see it as bigger than just, their, just Israel's case. I think it helps us to see what makes idols attractive and what makes idols deadly the attraction of idolatry, the reason that Israel was so attracted to it and and the reason we are in our own ways that are much less physical but no less real. The reason we're attracted to it is the prospect of control. Think about verse 6 again. The idea is they get to choose what this idol is going to look like. They get to choose the parameters for the thing they're going to trust in and delight in. They have an image of what they think is best and we do too. We want to shape our futures. Whatever it is, wherever your idols are more likely to lie, the thing that's universal for all of us, whatever they might be, is that we have an image of something in our future that we want to see come about. And we do everything we can to try to shape our futures according to that image. And the attraction of putting our chips there Of delighting in and trusting in something that we have thought up is that we are in complete control, at least at the creation process. We are in complete control of what our future will look like. When we're daydreaming, we set the terms, right? This isn't far removed at all from a craftsman who sketches out a plan, who chooses his elements, who who cuts and carves to fit his God to his exact specifications. Our idols promise us control. In the end, they're a load that we have to carry, and it's a crushing load. In case it's still abstract for you, let me give you let me let me let me try to play this out a little bit more with some examples. Last week we talked about career, about about the desire for, for recognition, for success. I think one of the other most most popular sources for idols for us is in relationships and family. Um and it makes, it makes perfect sense why we would idolize, say, for example, a relationship with someone of the opposite sex, a romantic one, a, a relationship that might lead to marriage. I remember, I've been married now for 10 years, but I vividly remember what it felt like to idolize a particular image of my future that would hinge on whether or not I could find the right spouse. We delight in these images, right? The thought of, of of having this connection to someone, of the emotional connection that you get, of companionship, of sexual intimacy, whatever it might be that drives you to that image, it makes sense. There's something delightful about it. We delight in the idea of it. And we seek deliverance from this idea. We think about loneliness. We think about what it would be to not have someone to share our lives with from beginning to end. And we want deliverance from that image of isolation and loneliness. And we seek it at this idol that we create. It's natural to have the perfect scenario mapped out in your mind, your future plotted out, and the steps that you're going to take to get there. And I want you to think about this process that comes so natural to us as, as not different at all from the design and the construction of a physical idol made of gold and silver. We are still the craftsmen. We're still the one who sets the terms. Now you've got your idol. You've got a construction of the perfect future that's sure to provide you delight and deliverance from loneliness. And now here's what happens. Given the image of our text, you've got your idol created. Let's see if this sounds familiar. What happens, given the image of our text, is that you realize it's a future that you have created out of thin air. It's an image. It's not real. It has no power of its own. It can't bring itself about. So what you've got to do, if you want that idol to become reality, if you want that image of the perfect future to become real for you, you've got to carry it, don't you? You've got to play the system. You've got to work the angles. You've got to be in the right place at the right time and have all the right words to say. You've got to find that right person and, build the build the the interactions in the way that they've got to be built for it to work out you've got to you've got to carry the god that you've created and it has a terrible cost if you let it the cost can can rob you of the joy that you have in others you can start to see others i know because i was guilty of this as relationship potential right you start to size them up for what kind of potential they might have you start to claim opportunities to interact as opportunities to serve your God rather than to invest in this person, rather than to enjoy this person. If you let it go, it can make you jealous. It can make you manipulative. It can make you feel like you've got to control every interaction with the person, so you've got to be always looking for the angle to improve your position, to bring that God a little bit closer to reality. It can make you neurotic almost. I remember in my own innocent you know, childish way. Obsessing over all the details. Especially once I had already identified who I wanted and I was after her. I remember just I remember I couldn't almost couldn't enjoy being the thought of, of a time when we were going to be together because I was worried about who would she be talking to, who she gonna be sitting by. Is am I going to get a chance to sit by her? And if not me, then who? Then when you when you begin a relationship that has these sort of roots, it's really common to demand more from it than what it can deliver. You want too much from it. You, de- you depend on this person to be your God. And it spoils the thing that you've worked so hard to build. It can, make you, it can make you feel like you've got to hold it together. And when you can't, it can send you to despair. I used to believe that if I could just get married, this tendency would go away. And those of you who are single and maybe thinking that, it's not. It's not true. It's a lie. Now I realize, especially now that we have children, how easily this image that I want my family to have can become a God in exactly the same way I used to make the idea of getting married a God. I have this image that I want for my kids. I want them to become certain people, and they don't always cooperate, right? And when they don't cooperate, you start to learn that it's not just something you want for them. It's also something that you want for yourself. That the image you have created for them is also an image of you that you want to present to the world. Your kids as a sort of reflection of you. And it's so natural that, that family becomes a greenhouse for idols because it's such a source of time, investment in your time. You spend so much of your energy and your time thinking about it and, and working it into certain images. And, and, and so it, it just makes sense that you start to take it into your identity. And you start to see that you as a person matter and are defined by how well you perform what the results are in this area of your life. And what it can do to you if you let it go. If you don't realize that it's an idol and fight and push back. Is that if, it, if it's going well, it can make you prideful. Right? This idol, this this image that I want my family to have. When it comes about, I know that I'm the reason. I pulled the right strings. And so it can make you prideful. Now I will say... It was a lot easier to be prideful about the image of kids that I wanted before I had kids and I could just look at everybody else and see their mistakes. Now that I have kids, um it's it's usually the other side that I'm experiencing the the despair that comes from knowing you haven't delivered. You haven't you haven't produced what you'd hoped to produce and it can make you defensive. It can make you overly sensitive because you want this thing because you're serving it. You get really defensive when anyone challenges that thing. You need the image to be true, and so you're always looking for any evidence that people don't think that it is. If if you let your idol run wild with you, that's what it is to carry it on your back like a weight. Your idols are on your back, whatever they are, and they're crushing you with their weight. They make you condescending and judgmental or insecure and self-loathing, but it never ends well. However it might look for you, it won't end well. And here is the reason. Some people might tell you, maybe, maybe the conventional wisdom is, that if you're, just, if you're struggling with an idol that isn't what you hoped it would be and you've, you've given in to some sort of self-loathing or despair, Conventional wisdom might be that you need more self-esteem, more confidence. I think it's just the reverse. If you're feeling the weight of an idol on you right now, if this is starting to to resonate with you, it sounds familiar, what you need is less self-confidence and less self-esteem. What you need to do is realize that you're dead already. If your future depends on your resources and your ability to carry this thing that's weighing you down, you're dead already. Just give it up. The problem, the reason you're stressed and anxious and Constantly working an angle is that you haven't realized that it is out of your control to produce the future that you want to produce. One of the best analogies I could think of for this is in a, a, a one of my favorite movies, war movie called Band of Brothers. It's more of a mini series. There's this one scene. I may have I may have used this before. I don't know. Pardon me if it sounds familiar. But there's this one scene where uh, um, they're in they're in battle. They're all dug into their foxholes and they're shooting at each other. You know, across these. This sort of no man's land. and There's this sergeant that walks up to one of the foxholes and in this foxhole is this private who's just cowering. I mean, he's terrified. He is overcome and immobilized by his fear. And what this sergeant says to him is that, you know what, dude? The reason you're stuck down cowering in your foxhole is you just haven't recognized you're already dead. What's immobilized him is the thought that he might have an alternate future, right? That he might be able to protect himself And accomplish something he wants to accomplish and get out of there alive. And the sergeant said there's going to be a kind of freedom for you, in other words, to paraphrase him, if you recognize that you're dead already. Christianity is really a call to recognize that if you're carrying your God on your shoulders, you're dead already. And you've got to acknowledge this death and give it up before you're ever going to live and be free that the path to life is through death. I think that's what, that's what Jesus had in mind when he says that if, if, if any man would live, he must die. You've got to accept, in other words, that you can't control your future. So what you need is a God who can. You've got to die to your image of what's best. That isn't going to come about unless you're powerful enough to make it. The thing that you carry around as your weight on your shoulders. You've got to die to that image. And turn to a God who won't submit to your desire for control. But who knows better than you do. And is powerful enough to do what's right. That's the image that comes in the other parts of this text. The God who carries you. comes out in verses 3 and 4 and verses 8 to 13. Think about this image we've already created of the idols who you fashion according to your specifications but then have to hoist onto your shoulders. And now hear this in verse 3. Speaking to Israel, God describes them as those who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. From the time they were even conceived, they were on God's shoulders. And he will carry them, verse 4 says, even even till your head is covered with gray hairs. I will carry you. I made you. I will bear you, I will carry you, I will save you. That's his promise. How can God carry us when the other things we have trusted end up being carried around on our shoulders? That's the question you should be asking. And it's the question that's answered in verses 8 to 11. The reason God is able to carry us is that he is not only the one who made us, who made everything that exists and holds it up now by his own power, but he is the God who knows the future for certain. The things that we try to project The things that we create into idols are images of a future that we want for ourselves. We are trying to see the future, trying to bring it about, and we know from experience that we can't. We've got to die to that, let that fall off of our shoulders. And the reason we can trust in God is that he has a certainty, a certain knowledge of the future that is best for us. And the only question is whether or not we'll trust in that, whether or not we'll take that as good enough for us. Our trouble comes from wanting to know and control our future from our unwillingness to admit our limits and to trust in Him because we prefer a God that we can control, right? Even if that means losing the security of a God who knows everything. We prize our vision of the future and here's the thing, I think this is the the rub. We just can't stomach the idea that God's vision for our future might be different from our vision. What keeps us from trusting Him is that we have a vision for our future that we desperately want to see and we can't stomach the fact that His vision for it might be different. We prefer a God that we can tailor to our specifications, even if that means having to carry it, rather than trusting a God who won't submit to our specs, a God who is mysterious and in some ways unknown. But the promise is this, if you, were, if you will die to the idol you've been carrying, you will live. If you give up and trust Him, He will carry you. And Though He alone knows what the future holds, though He alone is the one who has declared the end from the beginning, verse 10 says, and from ancient times things not yet done, though His ways are mysterious to you, he is never surprised and he is committed to the loving care of his people. I think here we need some examples as well. What we need here, I think, is some sense, some taste for what it would look like to live life differently if we were carried by the God who made all things versus carrying the gods that we have tailored to our own ends. What would it what would it look like to live life differently? Obviously, that's a a huge question. We can only scratch the surface here, but I think we've got to end there. I think we've got to avoid the impression that being carried by God means that you're not responsible, that you shouldn't go to work, that that you shouldn't try to figure out how you're going to pay for your kid's college, that you shouldn't think about the future at all and just sort of let go and let God. The Bible never shies away from this mystery between God who knows all things and controls even the future and our responsibility as humans to act and obey and to trust. So what we want to try to do is get a sense of how it might look for us to live in this tension, to live as if God was carrying us rather than the other way around. I want to come at it from a couple different angles. Here's the first one. I think what it would look like is that we would be driven more by faithfulness, by faithfulness in the present, than by an image of a future we're desperately trying to create. If we were to live as if God were carrying us, rather than the other way around, then what our focus will be on, more than anything else, is faithfulness now, in the present, as opposed to this future for ourselves that we want to desperately want to create. We would work hard at work, for example, as to the Lord, not for men. We wouldn't be working to establish ourselves. We will be ambitious. We will seek excellence, but not with the stress of carrying around our sense of purpose and significance on our backs, as if who we are depends on our efforts. We won't be, here's another way to say it we won't be resort, results oriented. We'll be more about the process. We will be more interested in seeing how God has described to us what faithfulness looks like and in pursuing faithfulness, obedience in the moment than in trying to produce any particular result that we're married to, that we may have made into a God. We're trusting God, in other words, to guide the ship towards an end that will glorify Him and give us joy. So we live in the present for faithfulness not with the stress of knowing and controlling a future that you can't know and can't control. Here's an, here's an analogy that might help this. I don't know if this is... You've got to be careful with analogies because if you, if you push them too far, you can end up with heresy. I don't want you to do that. But maybe just, just take it in the way I mean it for it and this could help you. I've had a couple of different jobs before this one. Not many. I've been good for nothing for most of my life. But, but um, I have had a job that's part of like a bigger company where you just sort of come to the job and you put in your time and you do what's asked of you but you don't really think about the future of that company um, you don't think about whether it's healthy or not you don't think that, that the, the success of whatever the company is after is determined by your performance that day and then I've also had a job that was 100% commission where if I was going to make even one dollar On that shift, it was going to be because I was able to sell something to somebody that they really didn't need and probably didn't want. And I think if you guys have had those kinds of jobs, you know it's a totally different kind of stress that comes with owning your own business or being on commission than with going to a job where you have a job to do, you're to be faithful to it, but you're you're a smaller piece in a much bigger pie and other people are in charge and are making sure it goes where it's supposed to. I think, that, I think it helps. It doesn't seal the deal, but it helps. Faithfulness, and think of yourself as an hourly employee and not a conditioned employee. To bring it back around to the parenting example I used before, one of, the, one of the things that you stress over as a parent is that you want to protect your children. You, don't want, you know that the world is full of sorrow and suffering, full of things that could hurt them, and you want to protect them from that. And it can be an immobilizing fear that can lead you to, to seeing threats everywhere. It can lead you ultimately to an inability to enjoy your children. Um, I was uh, reading this week, I've been re re-reading with some friends, one of my favorite novels of all. It's a novel by Wendell Berry called Jaber Crow. It, it is really, really good. It's worth your time. I came across this passage this week that never even hit me when I when I read it the first time several years ago. But this time I couldn't help but read it in light of this pa- of, the, of Isaiah 46. It's a passage where Jaber Crowes, the title character, is is having a conversation with one of his friends in his town, a guy named Matt Feltner. And Matt Feltner has just learned recently that his son was killed in World War II. It's a small town community, and they've got all these young boys over there fighting who knows where. And they start receiving word back you know, that they're dying one by one. And Matt feltner, the guy who lost his son, he was telling Jaber about a nightmare that he'd had the night before. The nightmare was that he, he was transported back to the time when his son was about five years old. He describes him as a pretty little boy who hadn't yet thought of anything we would rather do than follow Matt around at work. Innocent unaware, precious. And what made it a nightmare is that Feltner is seeing him as he was then with the knowledge of what was going to happen to him. And he said, all I could do was hug him and cry. And what he says is that the mercy of the world, this is a quote, the mercy of the world is that you don't know what's going to happen. I want to tweak that a little bit. I don't think as is, that's quite right. But with a little tweaking, that's that's basically what Isaiah 46 is calling for from us. It's almost true. Here's what Isaiah 46 presents to us. The mercy of God is that carried by Him, you don't have to know what's going to happen. Carried by Him, you can see your children or whatever else it might be for you as something to be enjoyed now because God has given it to you, but as something whose ultimate future and security does not rest on your shoulders. You get to see yourself as a parent or whatever else, fill in your blank, as an under-shepherd, not a shepherd, of a resource, of a precious thing that belongs ultimately to God, that is secured by Him, come what may. And your responsibility is to enjoy and be faithful now without the immobilizing fear that can come from a glimpse of a future that you can't stop, that you can't shape. Here's the last thing I want to say. I think holding to a God who carries you changes how you would process disappointment. All of us uh, have goals that aren't met sometimes. We have an idea of what seems best to us. We're, We're working towards it. That's natural. And then when it doesn't happen... When that image that we're trying to, to, to make real doesn't ever materialize, it's natural to be disappointed. And that's not sinful. But how you process disappointment when what you've been working towards doesn't match up with what actually happens. How you process disappointment is one of the best signs of whether you're carrying your gods or your God is carrying you. How you process it when you don't see your image become real is one of the best signs for whether you're carrying your gods or your God is carrying you. Tim Keller has a book on idolatry called the Counterfeit Gods. It's, it's really wonderful at helping us see idols in ourselves. and He describes something similar to this as the difference between sorrow and despair. And that the difference between sorrow and despair is idolatry. Sorrow is a natural byproduct of our limits. We have something that we think is good and we want to see it come about. And we just don't have the power to bring it about. And so it's, it's natural to have sorrow. It's not simple; it's a product of the fact that we can't help but have desires and goals, but we can't see the end from the beginning, and we can't control where things come down. But being carried by God means confronting disappointment like this with an with with what I would call an open-minded optimism. yes, it's disappointing and even sorrowful, but we trust that God is bigger than this thing that's happened to us. We trust that He is wise and loving and able to do what's best for us. And so we face a future that isn't what we would have chosen with a kind of open-minded optimism. It's an optimism that says, though this isn't how I would have done things, God needs no counselor. And He's able to do above what I ask and think. And it is profoundly good news. It is profoundly good news that God will not be limited by our plans. Despair is the mark of one who worships and serves a God who can't deliver. But hopeful sorrow, in Paul's words, a life that is sorrowful but always rejoicing, marks the one whose God might be mysterious. He might be untamed. But he's powerful and he's wise and he's righteous and he's loving. He is the Holy One of Israel. I can't help but think about this way of processing disappointment, a trusting, optimistic, hopeful sorrow through the lens that we get from Jesus and his conduct right before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane. The gospel writers tell us about it. Jesus was so sorrowful in that moment that he was crying drops of blood. That's how intense that stressful sorrow was. And he even asked his father in this mysterious Mysterious exchange that I, I can't explain. He asks his father to take away the cup that he's got to drink. He wants an alternate future in a sense, in some mysterious way. But his response, his his posture towards God is not my will, which in the mystery of his incarnation was limited, but, but your will be done. Do with me what you will. And he goes to the cross. He goes sorrowful, but he goes for the hope and the joy that was set before him, for the crown that he could see and taste, that he knew in the purposes of God was worth every ounce of sorrow he was forced to swallow here on this earth. And in his cross, what we have is the best evidence we could ever ask for that the same God he trusted is worth trusting now by us. The fact that God would send his son to die for us is a testimony to how committed he is to what is best for us. And it's a testimony to us that we can trust him even when we can't understand him. What you need to understand is that the cross is a promise to you that this God who won't be tamed by your expectations is worth trusting when those expectations aren't met. met. He is the God who didn't spare his own son and he will give us everything we need if we will trust him. And that is the question that this text leaves us with. The last two verses, which we haven't really talked about, the best explanation I saw of them is with this summary question. He calls on Israel. They're far from righteousness now. And he says, my righteousness, my definition of what's right is coming. And the question that hangs in the air is, will Israel and will we trust our own sense of what's right or bow to his Will we trust our own sense of what's right or will we bow to His? God, help us. God, help us to bow to You, to die, to our feeble, life crushing attempts to control what's coming for us. Help us to trust that through dying to ourselves, we can live, live in a way that's real that's free, that's submissive, yet freeing. Help us to trust that you are not a God who needs to be carried, but a God who is able, above all things, to do for us what needs doing. You have revealed yourself in a way that's clear, and now we ask for a sense of that truth on our hearts that will drive us and give us joy. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.